I love that enthusiasm. That was great. For the fall, we are spending our time in worship in a series that we are calling Q&A. We're letting the Old Testament or the Hebrew text share a story of the, uh, of the Israelite people and a question arises out of that text. And then we're looking to the gospel lesson for the day and we're letting the words of Jesus offer wisdom not necessarily an answer, but wisdom that we might use in finding an answer for us, the right answer. It's been an interesting way for us to look at those texts together, pair them up. Someone complained a few weeks ago when we started this, well, it's been 60 years and I've never seen a bulletin that didn't have the word sermon in it. Most of you haven't complained about that. Uh, there's not a sermon per se, but Amy and I are both uh, speaking uh, to these issues. I get to ask the question, and she gets to offer Jesus wisdom for some answers. I've been talking to you for several weeks in this series about exile. It is essential to understanding the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament. It's the Bible Jesus read. His Bible formed his theology, and Jesus' life formed ours. So we ought to learn about exile, because the movement from there to liberation is what Jesus is all about. For freedom, Christ has set us free, from exile to liberation. For several weeks in this series, the Old Testament lessons were preparing the people, the prophets of the Old Testament were warning the people, chastising the people, telling them, you have forgotten the covenant of God. And if you do not correct your ways, if you do not turn, dot, dot, dot. Well, they did not turn. We do not turn. And last week we found ourselves with the Israelites on a foreign bank of a foreign river in a foreign land, wondering how they could ever sing the Lord's song again. They had not turned, and that day that the prophet had warned about had come, and they were in exile. Today, they are still there in exile, waiting, hoping, longing, wanting to be somewhere else, wanting back what they had, have lost. It's a common emotion, I think. How often have you wished you were somewhere else? Maybe not physically, but emotionally or spiritually or in relationships. Have you wished you were somewhere else? You're in exile. How often have you been worn out from your waiting? How often have you wondered honestly if this whole business of faith isn't just the wishful thinking the critics say, some kind of pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by theology that ultimately justifies all the questions and all that is left unredeemed, all that is not yet, with just an appeal to heaven you know, it'll all be better by and by. It's not a very satisfying theology for today, is it? 
just after 7 o'clock this morning, I walked into room 3 in the Southminster Hospice Unit to find Nancy Grant's four sisters sitting around her bed in silence. Nancy had peacefully given up her battle with cancer just before I arrived. And so I pulled up a chair and I joined their circle of silence. What was there to say? Before I left later in the morning, I offered a scriptural benediction as a prayer. Nancy, may the Lord bless you and keep you. And when I said amen, one of the sisters across the bed sniffled, and I heard her say, fix this mistake. And I said, what was that? And she said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I said, fix this mistake. And she kind of apologized again as if she was embarrassed that I had heard her words, as if they represented some kind of, you know, loss of faith. Her sister had died. And I said, no, don't apologize. I get it. This is a mistake. This is not where we are supposed to be with your 55-year-old good-hearted, hard-working, creative, faith-loving sister. This is a mistake. Shakespeare might have said something is rotten in the state of Denmark. And that cry, fix this mistake, was just the honest cry of the heart in a not-yet moment in which we live. This isn't the way it ought to end. Christians pro proclaim Jesus Christ as Redeemer, but all is so clearly not redeemed. And how do we live with that? As if exile were not bad enough for the people, they found themselves enduring a kind of battle of preachers. Hananiah, on one hand, had the right pedigree. He wore the right clerical robes. He, was, he had the right reverend posture. Back in Jerusalem, the people had stood when Hananiah walked by. And then there was Jeremiah. They called him the weeping prophet. He spent his time like a street corner preacher out there wailing at the people. It's all going to hell in a handbasket. There was the road, and there was the railing, the steeple, and the street corner. Who are you going to trust? Hananiah told the people in exile, well, don't worry. God is with us. This is just a temporary setback. It's a brief obstacle. We are God's chosen ones. God loves us. God is watching over us. We will be back in God's temple in no time. But Jeremiah wept, and he told the people the truth. There are no easy answers to this crushing dilemma of our faith. The temple is gone. We thought we were God's people. Hmm. Really? 
and you're not coming home anytime soon. To which prophet do you think the people listened? But the years wore on and it finally became clear that Jeremiah's truth, his hard, unconventional, anti-establishment truth was the truth. And I'm guessing somewhere along the way they dug up that letter that Jeremiah had read that they initially ignored, mostly ignored years before, and they reread it. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the people who were anybody, the common folk he left, but the priests and the people with money and education and power, they all got exiled to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the court officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the artisans and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, son of Shaphan and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom King Zedekiah of Judah sent to Babylon to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. The letter said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's the message. Build homes and live in them. You don't build a house if you're not going to be there for some time. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. There aren't going to be any more Jerusalem tomatoes for some time. Take wives and sons and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. What a strange word for the people who thought of themselves as pure here, Jeremiah says, in this foreign land with these foreign people who look different and talk different, who were a different race of people, marry off your sons and daughters to theirs. It was a strange, hard message. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. The people cried to God, fix this mistake. Only Jeremiah dared to speak the hard truth. You cannot fix this. You can only live with it. So I ask you this day, what mistake or what injustice of this not yet time in which we live? Or what unredeemed situation are you living with or struggling with? And is your faith offering you the easy answers of Hananiah or the hard but hopeful reality of Jeremiah?
It's an interesting task to take a question from Jeremiah and look for some answers in Jesus. So Luke tells us this story. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan, not a throwaway line. Then Jesus asked, were not ten made clean? The other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. You've heard the ancient story. It's one of the first things we teach our children to say. After mama and dada and what does the dog say, we begin teaching thank you. It often comes out as tata the first times, but that works. And then parents begin the indoctrination, ingraining process for every kind action toward your child from you or anyone else, even strangers. The question is posed to the child, what do you say? And the child can't have whatever is being offered until they oblige with a proper thank you. I can remember traveling to my parents' house on Christmas morning before the big opening and preparing our then young sons. Now remember, every time you open a gift today, and that will be a lot of times, remember to say thank you. And it doesn't count unless they hear you. So call their name, make eye contact, and say thank you. And because the grand opening at my parents' house is always complete chaos with everyone talking and opening and laughing. It's hard to keep up. So my Christmas morning was often more filled with watching to make sure that my children had properly thanked everyone at the precise moment of opening whatever wonderful and grand gift that they had just received. What do you say? What do you say? How many times do you have to say? What do you say? And yet I wonder, is that how I really live my life? I'm great at teaching them. Am I good at following my own advice? Do we respond with a sense of prompt and immediate gratitude, no matter what? Even when things can't be fixed, do I live in a spirit of giving thanks? 
There were 10 lepers that got healed that day, but only one returned to thank Jesus. The other nine often get a bad rap because of their lack of gratitude. They are presumed selfish and self-centered and ungrateful. They were probably the first to greet him as he got close to town. From afar, they greeted him, of course. They were not clean. They were probably the first because they would have been just outside the gates of the town as he entered outside the gates because that's where the unclean people were kept. The rules for lepers is made very clear in Jewish law. The person who has the leprous disease shall wear torn clothes and the hair of his or her head shall be disheveled and they cover their lip and cry out when they meet anyone, unclean, unclean, unclean. They shall remain unclean as long as they have this disease. They shall live alone. Their dwelling shall be outside the camp. So he doesn't run up to them and place his hands on them. He doesn't notice them first. He simply responds to being noticed. They want to be healed, and at first glance, it may seem like he's passing the buck a bit. Why don't you go on down there to the priest and visit them a while and see what they can do to help you out, he says. I know exactly how you feel, Jesus. We do that at church all the time. I'm sorry, we don't have any money to help you. We give to crisis assistance. Why don't you go down to Graham Street and see if they can heal you there? I'm sorry, we don't have any food here to give you, but I can make a referral for loaves and fishes for you. So Jesus sends them off to find their healing somewhere other than his specific touch. He points them in the right direction. And what do they have to lose? So they go. And on the way, oh, on the way, I love on the way. On the way, they are healed. I can only imagine the great rejoicing that took place in that moment. First, it was disbelief. They're looking around. They're checking each other out. And then there's a lot of jumping up and down and a lot of hugging each other. And then that's when the crying starts, I'm pretty sure. And they began to think, I've got to go see my children. I've got to go see my parents. I've got to go see my wife. I've got to go see my neighbor. I've got to go see my sister. I've got to go see my uncle. I've got to go to where I work last. I've got to go to my house. I've got to go to see my best friend. Nine different places they had to get to immediately because they had been healed on the way. Perhaps those nine weren't good-for-nothing ingrates as much as they were finally good-for-something, grateful, excited, clean, real, live people again. I'm guessing 
that maybe you can join me in imagining that the first thing you want to do is run and touch somebody that you love and know that you have been estranged from. But there was one, the Samaritan, not a throwaway line, who before doing anything else, he just had to run back to the one that had pointed him in the right direction and simply say, thank you. It doesn't mean that the others weren't grateful or had no manners. But this one, this Samaritan one who was doubly outcasted, this one had a moment of clarity in the midst of his excitement, and his moment of clarity pointed him toward gratitude and thanksgiving, and if this is true, then I want to be more clear in the way I live my life. David Luce, a commentator on this text, says, Thanksgiving is like that. It springs from perception, our ability to recognize blessing, and then articulation, giving expression, no matter how inadequate it may seem at the time, giving expression for our gratitude for the blessing. And when those are combined, our ability to recognize blessing and give thanks for the blessing. When those two are combined, you get a second blessing. Gratitude, he says, is the noblest emotion. Gratitude draws us out of ourselves into something larger, bigger, and grander than we could ever imagine and joins us to the font of blessing itself. But maybe, just maybe, Gratitude is also the most powerful emotion as it frees us from fear and releases us from anxiety and emboldens us to do more and dare more than we'd ever imagined. Even to return to a Jewish rabbi to give thanks when you are a Samaritan because you've realized that you are more than a Samaritan, more than a leper, more than a healed leper, you are a child of God. And that's what the nine missed. It's not that they did anything wrong. It's that they didn't see their good fortune and voice their blessing. And so they missed out on being made whole. Is our world feel, filled with trouble? Yes. Are there many people living in exile? Something that would feel much like the Babylonian exile? Yes. But our world is also filled with blessing. Families that care for each other, colleagues who work hard, schools where teachers care about their pupils and students are eager to learn. A form of government that is far from perfect, yet strives to honor its citizens by conveying a level of freedom and opportunity rarely imagined. Relief agencies that tend to the afflicted, service people who regularly put their lives on the line for others, churches. 
where the word of God is preached and the life of faith is nourished. In her book, Help, Thanks, Wow, Anne Lamott says of the second prayer, thanks. The full prayer in its entirety goes like this. Thank you, 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 thank you. But for reasons of brevity, I just refer to it as thanks. We're entering the season of Thanksgiving. Just after the upcoming often scary time of ghosts and goblins that is not my favorite, comes perhaps the best season of all. A time when our whole country resorts to giving thanks. We sure could use some of that right now. Perhaps I have a bit extra gratitude in my heart at this time of the year since my firstborn was actually born on Thanksgiving Day at 1 p.m. when the rest of the country was devouring turkey and dressing. I was giving birth. Gratitude and thanksgiving really doesn't even cover that. But what if I lived out my joys and my sorrows in gratitude? What if I started each day with giving thanks, even in the midst of the hardest of hard times? Can I find something for which to be grateful? Even in times of exile, the Baptist preacher turned Episcopal priest, John Claypool, after the death of his young daughter, found his way out of the depths of grief through the path of gratitude, he called it. He says he could have taken the road of resentment and blame, but instead he found himself giving thanks that Laura Lou had ever graced his life at all. Did the pain go away? No. Did everything get better after his attitude adjustment? Of course not. His daughter was still dead. But somewhere on the road of gratitude, he learned how to live again, and he thought he would never be able to do that. So what if instead of dreading the day that our boys leave our house and start lives of their own, what if I listed all the ways for which I am grateful that we got to live with them for 18 years? Will I cry when I leave them in their college dorm room? Yes. Buckets. I can almost start now and it's not even here yet. But how might gratitude change me in the meantime? What if instead of the dread of the test results or the intense grief of awaiting death, we use that time to give thanks for all the goodness in the midst of all the pain? Will the ache in your heart and your gut remain? Absolutely. Is this some kind of syrupy Pollyanna naivete? Not at all. This is called living life as the tenth leper and not the other nine. Amid the various ecclesial, ethical, and liturgical reforms of the 16th century, Martin Luther was once asked to describe the nature of true worship. 
his answer, the tenth leper turning back. I want to live my life as the tenth leper. Even when I'm in exile, I want to live my life as the tenth leper. I think I'll start right now. I've been carrying around some note cards in my calendar, needing to write some thank you notes and just never finding the time. The time's there, I just hadn't found it. So since there's no time like the present, Dear Buck and Betty, thank you for the donation to Loaves and Fishes in my honor. What a perfect gift to end my time of service as president of the board. Dear Shirley, thank you for the beautiful cross necklace. I have already loved wearing it. Dear Ober, thank you for the lovely earrings that you had made for me out of your chandelier. I can't wait to wear them for just the right occasion. And it will have to be a special occasion. They're like this big. Ober, I plan to wear them on your 100th birthday party in two years. Dear Sue, thank you for the beautiful addition to my Madonna collection, like Mary and baby Jesus Madonna. <laughs> Knowing that you know me so well, to think of me when you saw it, means more than the gift itself. I'll put them in the mail tomorrow. Plus a few more. Anne Lamott sums up the thanks prayer this way. She says that the thanks prayer is important because it leads to gratitude. It becomes action and behavior and habit. It is the tenth leper kind of living. I think Jeremiah would have wanted it that way. May it be so. Amen.